Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, you get our take on what's going on with these bank failures and what you should be thinking about as a result. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Kraftwerk Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, good to see you. Good to see you. We are cutting in line. We already had an episode recorded for this week, but it turns out there's been some disruption in the banking system. And so like all podcasts that cover topics of our nature in finance, personal finance, etc., we felt like we wanted to at least be topical enough to talk about it and and could jump in to, to record something here. I feel like we've had enough disruptions in the banking system for my lifetime. Can we take a break for a couple generations? Yeah, no, I don't need one of these every decade. I, I think it may continue to happen, and we're going to talk about some of the reasons why. But uh, I've had enough banking disruptions, certainly, for a career in finance. But uh, it just doesn't seem like they're going to stop. No, it doesn't. So... I know a lot of people have gotten into exactly what happened, but why don't we unpack it one more time for our listeners as to what happened to Silicon Valley Bank and why are we in this mess today? Yeah, so and and we're going to try and hit this really quickly because I think we're going to spend most of our time talking about what I hope are some different angles here. Before we talk about what happened, Dan, can I at least reflect with you? And and both, it, it's something that was embarrassing at the time, quite frankly. But now I'm really thankful for when we started our financial planning business. And as a startup, you have to go out and get a bank account to keep your your books separate and clean. And we applied to Silicon Valley Bank to have a bank account, and they were like, "Nah, we're good." Yeah. Like we were literally, I, I they it was it was kind of strange. You almost had to write a pitch for them, if I remember it correctly which I had never seen on a business bank account before. But they were kind of like, well, what are you doing as a startup? And I think if we had said, we're going to sell some software package for financial planning, and it's going to go to a billion dollars, they would have been really excited to do business with us. But we said, we're going to be a financial planning firm based on the East Coast and the Washington, D.C. area. And they were like, yeah, we're, we're not into it. I had actually forgotten that we tried to open an account with them. Uh, so when you told me that, it was as if I were hearing it for the first time. That's really funny because I remember that very vividly. And I guess I was the one that did it at the time. But uh, I remember feeling that rejection and being like, huh, like one, that's a little disappointing, right? If you're going to say you're this resource for startups and founders and all this stuff. And it was like, hey, I'm in that category. We, we are those people that could refer to us. But now I'm pretty grateful that they didn't want our business. And maybe they're rethinking some of those things. I was going to say in retrospect, having diversified their client base would have been very good for them. Yeah. Sl- sleepy little financial planning firms not running on banks, big tech investors and venture capital firms doing plenty of that. So in any case, I thought that was a funny aside. So what happened? Well, reportedly, Silicon Valley Bank for the last eight months has not had a head of risk management. That's a poor choice. Not great. Yeah. If you're a bank, you are almost exclusively in the business of managing risk. Let's talk about why. 
by definition, a bank is a leveraged business. The moment you take in a deposit, their only function as a deposit holding institution is to take in money and then lend it to others. And then hopefully they make a profit on the difference between what they're paying you in interest on the money you gave them and the interest they are earning on the money that they gave out to somebody else. When you get a mortgage, when you go buy a car and you finance it, those are just other people's deposits that they are using to buy your stuff. So as a borrower, you are simply relying on the money that other people have put into that bank. That's not the bank's money. That is other people's money that have deposited at that bank that they are lending out. As a depositor in a bank, it is the opposite. You are lending that money to the bank. You are putting that money in a bank account on the promise that at some point they're going to give it back to you at some uncertain date, but you're giving them the permission to take at least a portion of it and go lend it to people. So that process, I mean, just as you think about the mechanics of that, if you had put a hundred grand in the bank and then they take 60% of that money and they go make a mortgage with it, it's going to take them 30 years to get that money back. That is where the risk lies in banking is in the mechanics and managing the cash flow and the risk of what... Because I keep hearing people refer to it as the bank's investments, and that is what it is. The bank has to go do stuff with this money that they've received. But let's not call it an investment, right? In many cases, they're making loans. In some cases, they are buying debt, which is really what got Silicon Valley into trouble. But that is kind of the core purpose of a bank is to take in your money as a depositor and lend it to other people on the promise that they've kind of managed the risk well enough that they will have liquidity when you need it. And that is a faith-based system. Yeah, absolutely. And that's true for all banks. So banks do need to keep a certain amount in reserve to make sure that they can support kind of the normal flow of withdrawals day to day. But any bank, if you went to it and every depositor said, I need all my money back today, there's going to be a problem. 100% of banks will fail in that situation. There is not a bank that has all the money on hand. They can't. They wouldn't be a bank if that's what they were doing. My first job out of college, I think I've mentioned this before, was at a bank. And on one or two occasions, we had a situation where someone came and wanted a substantial amount in cash as a withdrawal. And bank branches only keep a certain amount of money in cash. And there were times where we couldn't support that. So, you know, even on a micro scale, you know, you can't just walk into a bank and expect every dollar you have in cash because they need to plan for that. Just like on a big scale, banks need to plan for the ebbs and flows of money in their uh, entity as a whole. Now, this is an aside, Dan. Did you ever run into this? If somebody calls in advance and basically requests, I don't know whether it's days ahead of time, that they are going to need to make a cash withdrawal that's very large. Will the bank prepare for that? Do do they have to like go get the cash and have it shipped in? Definitely. Yeah, we'd have shipments of cash if someone was requiring a large withdrawal. So it can happen, but that's no longer what you need to do to to move all your money around. Now you can do it pretty much with your cell phone. Uh, And that's what happened to Silicon Valley Bank to the tune of about $40 billion. Yes. So Silicon Valley Bank announced that they needed to raise capital. And that really started the frenzy. So the second there's cracks 
in the foundation of a bank and everyone starts running at once to get their money out, it spirals into an unsolvable issue for this bank. And they were struggling to find liquidity to support these withdrawals. Now, part of the reason that they were struggling to find liquidity is that they had things on their books that they didn't want to sell. Uh, And I'm going to give you a personal example of this because I think that this and I know that this wades into accounting. It really does. This, this wades into an area that most people don't want to spend a ton of time. But let's talk about how banks have to report bonds on their books. Historically, people like the boring topics on our show. So get ready for some accounting. Exactly. I, I don't even mind wading into it. So one of the things that Silicon Valley Bank had done with the lack of a risk manager at the helm is that they had bought a massive amount of treasury bonds. And depending on how you categorize those bonds on your balance sheet, you may have to mark them to market or you may not. So I'm going to give you a very, very micro personal example. This is a bond that I own in my account uh, right now, in my brokerage account. Uh, And the intent of it was really that I don't own a home right now. And I think I might want to buy one again at some point. So I've got some safer assets kind of sitting around for that. So on the day that I bought this bond... And I'm just gonna I'm gonna adjust the numbers as if I had bought just a single one. I paid nine hundred ninety six dollars for the bond. That is ultimately going to pay back a thousand dollars, right? So almost at par. I basically bought it right around at par. Over the time that I hold that bond, which is uh, I think it goes up to twenty twenty four, they're going to pay me a coupon rate. They're going to pay me the interest on that debt, and then on the day that it becomes due, they have to give me back a thousand dollars. For every bond that I bought. Well, since then, interest rates have gone up. If I had to sell that bond today, I would take a $21 loss on my bond. I could only sell it for $974. But the contract hasn't changed. They still have to give it back to me at $1,000. They still have to pay me the interest that I am owed, right? So this is why we talk about constantly interest rates up, bond prices down. So I couldn't sell it today for what I bought it for. But in theory, I am not going to experience a loss on that bond as long as I continue to hold it. The accounting treatment of that depends for the bank on whether it is considered held to maturity or held for sale. If it is held to maturity, which is what I'm explaining, that I'm just going to sit on this thing until it's done, well, then I would just report it on my balance sheet at the 996 I paid for it plus or minus the adjustment as it amortizes closer to the 1000 bucks. If I am holding it on my balance sheet as held for sale, I have to show it at 974 and tell the stock market and all of my investors that I have experienced a loss of $21 for every bond that I hold. That's the same thing that public companies are dealing with. So what had happened with Silicon Valley Bank is that they had bought a massive number of treasury bonds. They had not done anything to hedge out the interest rate risk, which there's a bunch of tools they could have used for that. And basically, the interest rates moved. So on their books, the price of those bonds came down. They can't sell them anymore for what they were going to, what they would need to sell them for in the open market. But if they held them to maturity, there's really no loss. There's a lot of argument now on whether or not that's how we should be doing it. Right, because clearly there was a risk embedded in the bank that wasn't overtly visible to the public. 
So when all these companies and shareholders come and say, I need my money back, it's possible that Silicon Valley was perfectly solvent, but had trouble meeting those demands immediately and had to move that money from what Ross called held to maturity, money they didn't plan on accessing until those bonds came due, into current assets that they needed in cash to give to people pulling money out. And so they had to take that loss, which really hurt their balance sheet at a time where they weren't ready to take that hit. Yeah. So there's people talking about banking regulation and that we should not be allowing banks to report on a held to maturity basis, that they should have to mark these assets to market constantly, because quite frankly, if they can't sell it and get their money back out, they may be completely insolvent. They may be in this situation. I don't know the right answer there. Uh, I am not a bank balance sheet expert in that way. Um, I I understand it well enough to to say what I just said to all of you, but it makes sense to me both angles. I I understand why you wouldn't want to report that as a loss, certainly for your profitability metrics, but more so that the contract you've entered into is not broken. You're going to get your money back if, right? And that if is, do you have enough in reserves Do you have enough in cash? Which, turning to kind of the personal finance side, this is why we are constantly beating the drum on having a cash reserve and building your portfolio in a way that the maturity and kind of the duration of your portfolio matches your needs. Sometimes those needs are explicitly known. I'm going to have to pay for college in X number of years because that's when my kid turns 18. Sometimes those needs are not explicitly known and you have a leak in your roof and it turns out it needs to be replaced, right? And so we tend to build that level of safety into our financial plans and the advice that we give to say, yeah, this is what we're expecting plus a we don't know category. Sometimes when I talk about three to five years of cash needs held in safe assets, I get a lot of pushback because that can be a very high number. And your instinct is I don't want this money sitting here being unproductive. My response is often that that is being very productive for you because you know what you need that money for and it is there to serve that purpose. So why risk a situation like these banks are facing now where you could put it in something that could be 80% of what it was the day you bought it when the time comes that you need to pull that money out? It's just not worth the risk. Yeah, I get pushback on that occasionally too, normally when the market is absolutely ripping. I don't get pushback on on a year like this where people go, Hey, can can we get into some more treasury bills? Because I really like the yield I'm getting on my treasuries now that rates have adjusted. <laughs> right. So, I mean, because you say that, earlier on when treasuries were paying nothing and interest rates were persistently low, this wasn't an issue for banks. First of all, because they were flush with cash. People were doing really well and moving money into the banks. There were lots of deals to be made. They could allocate money towards longer term investing objectives because they didn't need it. There was a net inflow of cash. When the tables have turned both in terms of interest rates and the businesses they were serving were starting to struggle too. It's a double whammy for the bank. And you know, I think it still remains to be seen how far this spreads because where there's one bank in trouble, I assure you there are others as well. Uh, we might be at the tip of the iceberg, but the government has at least in this instance, backstopped depositors, even though it hasn't helped the shareholders. Um, So at least the companies that bank with Silicon Valley, the individuals who did, who had uninsured deposits are secure for the time being. 
Yeah, it's really a challenge, right? I mean, as you become a larger and larger company, uh, and Dan, you and I don't quite suffer from this yet, but uh, it does become a challenge, right? The FDIC limits 250000 That's per individual. So if you have a joint account at a bank, you and your spouse, it's a $500,000 limit. If you are over that, you should consider the safety of your bank, right? I mean, that that's just simply what it is. If you're going to have more than that in cash, the system is designed so that you take on some risk as what is kind of considered to be a more sophisticated investor that should know better, right? That's kind of how you're being treated by the regulation. The same way that investors that meet accredited investor status or qualified purchaser status are allowed to get into hedge funds and things that do really crazy investing that is very, very high risk. That is because they're assuming you should know better, right? You should be able to assess that risk. That's what's kind of currently in the law. That's not really what's being enforced um, because the government has come in and backstopped investors that have hundreds of millions of dollars in deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. And they've made it very cloudy as to what you should expect as a depositor in this country. Because if they're going to continue to do this, then those FDIC limits should be raised and those banks should be paying insurance on it, right? If the FDIC is going to backstop all deposits, that should all be insured deposits. That should just be how it works. So if that's the reform that comes out of this, I would be supportive of that. Uh, Or at least that as a depositor into the bank that you can choose to add that insurance and pay for it yourself. Maybe maybe that's what we need is to make banking a service that we pay for rather than a spot where really we are the capital that they are taking risk with. Maybe we can choose to pay our own deposit insurance so that they don't use our money for other stuff. Right. So, so, you know, maybe that's what people are looking for. I had a conversation uh, over the weekend with my brother talking about that, that maybe what people really want is just somebody to hold the money for them. And they're willing to pay for that as a service rather than the bank kind of using our money and we don't see which ways they're doing it. I think that that very similar to the way I think about, you know, social media, that if it's free and it's good, you're, the product, not the customer, right? You're there to sell eyeballs to advertisers. That's kind of how banks are working is you think it's free or even better, you're getting paid to use it. Well, there's a reason for that. So funny. I don't think we'd planned this is where our conversation was going to go, but the world has been going in the exact opposite direction over the past couple decades because banking used to have a lot more fee-for-service functions and there has been a pressure on banks to make everything free like, why would I pay a monthly fee for a checking account? Why do I want to pay for like wiring benefits? And so they've dropped everything to almost zero. I, I don't think the trade-off for that was banks are now going to be insolvent and in trouble. But I think you're right. There are probably a subset of customers who would prefer a bank that charged nominally for things in exchange for safety or even just the ability to customize a relationship. It's just that people don't understand what's happening in the background. And because of what we're talking about, even if you were savvy enough that you're going to look at a bank's balance sheet before you choose to open a deposit account, the fact that they can play games with how they categorize bonds on their own balance sheet and show losses or not, and they know that, right? If we know that, they certainly know it, right? So so they're going to play games if they can, to make themselves look as trustworthy as possible. 
And then if you've ultimately got the government backstopping the, de- the depositors anyway, what's the incentive not to take risk as a bank? You mentioned something on the phone with me yesterday I thought was interesting that I haven't heard anyone talking about. But speaking of taking risk, one banking product that you referenced that could be wrapped up in a situation like this are structured notes that banks and financial institutions offer, which are a general liability of that institution. Why don't you share a little bit about what those are, first of all, and the risk that's inherent in them with the people who had bought those? Yeah. So we don't do any of this business today. Uh, But when I was at Morgan Stanley, when I was at Ameriprise, we used to see these notes getting pitched and wholesalers would come in and tell us how great the product is. And occasionally I'll still have a client bring one to me where I'm, I'm, they're saying, Hey, I'm getting offered this thing. What do you think? And structured notes can come in a lot of different formats and flavors. And so I'm not saying all of them are bad or or whatever. Um, But normally what they are is a promissory note that is tied to a security. And it's normally going to offer some structure of the security that you can't get just by buying it. And so an example would be, over the next 18 months, you're going to get the the return of the S&P 500 on the upside. And we're going to get you a 10% downside buffer. So if it goes up, you make one for one on the upside. And if it goes down, the first 10% of losses are insulated. You're in an 18-month-long contract to take that position. Well, on its face, that sounds pretty good. And again, I'm making that up. That's not a specific note. But there's a lot of them like that. Some of them have leveraged upside. Some of them have zero downside up to 30%. There's all sorts of ways they build them. I've always had two issues with structured notes. Number one is that generally, you're talking about the price return of the index, not the total return of the index. That may not sound like a big deal, especially over uh, an 18-month time period, right? So maybe you think, hey, who cares? And just to clarify, price return versus total return, really the difference there is the dividend. So you're not getting the dividend payouts in the price return of the index. That is correct. And so you you might look at the S&P 500 and say, well, who cares about the dividend over, over 18 months? Maybe it's no big deal. And maybe to you, it's not. I would argue that it is worth at least understanding what the difference is. If we're going to give you price return, if we look at just the last five years, the S&P 500's price return is up 54%, 54.65. The S&P 500's total return, 66.7. So over just a five-year period, and this continues to compound, uh, if I got out to 10 years or, or more, it's really meaningful. But over a five-year period, you're giving up more than 10% of your total return by not having that dividend, especially if you're continuing to reinvest it. So I normally don't like the structured notes just because they they offer a price return length metric. But maybe you can get over that and you don't care on, on whatever the current structure is. The second is the real risk here, which is that that structured note is an obligation of the bank. You are not buying the S&P 500 with some guarantee from the bank, like an insurance product would offer. This is a general asset of the bank. And if the bank becomes insolvent, your structured note goes with it. Get in line. Wait for your money. You are now, yeah, you're, you're, you're now a bondholder of the bank. They owe you this money, but all you have is a contract saying, hey, they agreed to pay me. And you're in line with everybody else. 
that's a scary place to be. And there's a lot of these. Uh, and a, another bank that is basically failed and has just been absorbed by UBS is Credit Suisse. And I know that they did a bunch of these. I used to see them all the time. Now, again, luckily them being bought means that they've got a bank coming in that will accept those obligations and you should be fine if you've got structured notes that are now going to be UBS structured notes. But that's a very big deal. And I, and I always think that people looked at those structured notes and said, well, yeah, I would love the S&P 500 return with a guaranteed buffer on the downside and never really priced in, am I worried about this bank? And maybe that's just because we hadn't had a failure of this size since 2008. But I think it was a real risk, and I think we're seeing it. Right. And and I don't think that banks are going to go around failing constantly, but it is something to be aware of. And similarly, even though we're not talking about them explicitly now, I would make the same kind of evaluations when you're buying insurance, because insurance is also a promise of a company to pay. And if that company isn't around to pay the obligation when the time comes, your contract was worthless. So making sure you're working with good institutions is important, especially for things like your money and your protection through insurance. So, you know, if you're listening to this, I I think there's a few things that you should be asking yourself. Number one, as you look at your banking relationships, just in general, are they all at one institution? Um, I've always been a fan of having checking and savings at different institutions just as a as a rule, I, I like that. It gets them off the same screen. Um, even if you're not north of the deposit limits, I think having an institution or two in your back pocket as secondary sources where you can get cash from makes some sense. Um, I would also argue, and uh, I really got this point from listening to to Joshua Sheets's podcast, and he's a little bit more of an extremist in some areas than I am, having some physical currency that you have access to. Maybe not huge amounts, but maybe a month of your expenses. Uh, if you've got a small home safe or something of, along those lines to keep a little bit of cash around, if you're in that position to do so, live in a safe enough place, uh, I think having some physical currency is worth it, um, at, at least in in some portion. If there were electrical problems and you couldn't get online for some reason or the cell towers go out and you can't access it via your phone... I, I think so many of us are are overly digitally based that just having access to some physical currency, if you had to pick up and go, probably makes some sense. And access to tip money. I find I'm always going to ATMs for tip money. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I think that, that does make sense. Uh, if you are over the FDIC insurance limits, again, that's $250 per person. You know, for most households, even if you're at a multiple of it, if you've got a million bucks, it's not that hard to split that between a couple of institutions, two or three maybe. If you're a company and you've got a hundred million of cash, that's a little bit harder, right? Do you go to four hundred different banks and open corporate bank accounts? That becomes very cumbersome. But I do think it is a it's a time where we need to be aware of who we're doing business with and why. If you're looking at where to park cash because you're over those limits, I think money market accounts become very interesting. And Bloomberg reported that Schwab had a huge outflow from their prime money market fund into a government money market fund. That's interesting to me. Uh, A prime money market fund generally is going to be super short-term corporate paper, where it is companies, it's businesses. And if they default, 
you know that that has a potential to to default. Banks use those a lot. Uh, I do remember when Lehman went bankrupt. That that was when one of the big money market funds in 08 broke the dollar, meaning that when you buy a money market, you typically get a dollar for for each one that you put in, and it dropped to 97 cents in value on that Lehman bankruptcy, if I remember it correctly. So, you know, looking at your money market option and saying, do I have a government money market where it is the full faith and credit of a government institution that I'm buying into? Or are you buying into a corporate money market, which is generally going to be a prime fund? I think that's worth looking at. And clearly, the investors at Schwab have been moving that way to add some additional security. Uh, that's not a move that I've made personally or, or that we've made for clients, but it's worth considering. Uh, what do you own in your money market? Yeah, I find that very interesting. And following the flow of money in general lately has been interesting. A lot of people have been fleeing regional banks into these large, sturdy institutions. It's strange because I think there's a lot of good and value in community banking. Uh, but, you, you know, an institution is only as good as the faith and credit that it has earned with its community. And if this continues to happen, there could be a, you know, a, a long struggle for community banks ahead if they're all dealing with deposit outflows and facing similar situations just because of the fear inherent in the, you know, in the current climate. Chris Hill said this uh, on on Motley Fool Money this past week. I can't remember which which day it was. He basically said there isn't a company in this country that is not having a conversation about their banks and going, hey, "Are we good here?" Like even <laughs> even if it's just a, a quick check in, even if you're with a monster money center bank like like a J.P. Morgan or or a Wells or a B of A or a City, you're at least gonna gonna check in on it and say, "Have we evaluated this risk in a way that we're comfortable?" Uh, and I think that households are doing the same. So we we hope that you're doing that as well. I don't think that we need to to further a run on these banks in terms of encouraging people to do that. But checking in on that safety, that's critical. Yeah, absolutely. If you're below the FDIC thresholds, remain calm. If you're above, I think spreading the wealth a little bit and making sure that you're protected if the government decides not to backstop everyone in the world, that would be a prudent move. Uh, but otherwise, you know, sleep easy at night and, you know, on to the next crisis that seems to come every minute. We appreciate everybody tuning in. We hope you got something from our coverage of this that you didn't get on every other podcast talking about these bank failures and what's going on in the world today. Come back next week for our interview with Betsy. We really found it exciting of what resources she has. That's going to be a student loan focused episode. And if you've got questions for Dan and I, we're actually not going to get to a March mailbag this this month because of uh, how we've now spaced the episodes out, but we will certainly do one in April. Check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for our show. We will catch up with you next week. <laughs>